The Creepshow podcast contains content that is not suitable for younger listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And I'm Ashley, and today we are talking about toolbox killers. But you wanted to talk about an article first that you saw? Yes, I actually came, well actually, my boyfriend told me about it. Mm -hmm. And it was called The Lost Colony, about this town, like 115 people. Like clothes were still there. It's like that song that like they made up their mind and they started walking. You know, remember that song from like the nineties? Where oh, were they gosh. going without even knowing the way? Oh, I probably know it if I read an article or one of the two, and it's about a city in California that will probably be including in that story. So coming soon. Yeah. So uh, what uh, what creeps you out? Sometimes my cat when she yeah. want when I feel uh, stabbing pains in my side, just walking up. Yeah. It's like a big old fat potato on toothpicks. <laughs> well, what creeps me out is like, um, I think Daisy has finally made it back. So Daisy, for those of you who don't know, is my cat that I had to put down back in March. Um, wait, what? And, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that she has made her found her way back. I mean, her ashes are at you know my my place, and I've been seeing like little shadows, something out of the corner of my eye, about the size of a cat. And I think it's like Binks because he's black. So I think it's him. And I look up and he's like in the cat tree or on the couch or on my bed. And I'm like, okay. right next to him. Like, what the hell? <laughs> so, yeah, I think Daisy found her way back. Aww. Yeah. It's uh, it's real sweet. So. <laughs> oh, sometimes I'd be sitting there like late this morning because well, Miss Thing. Okay. Yesterday morning, she conned me in to get getting fed a little early Mm -hmm. i was thinking okay it's probably like five five three whatever it's 420 i'm like are you serious like i already gave her the food maybe she was like mommy it's time to wake and bake (laughs) it's 420 no why it's like that's that's how she wakes me up like if i am sleeping on my side Mm -hmm. she will find a way to wake me up in the most painful. It's just whenever she takes her little toothpick legs <laughs> and just you feel it and like right in my ribs. And it's like, okay, all right, I can't take, all right, I'm up. At least she doesn't bite up. you like my cat does. I mean, she'll like, well, I'll make her wait. It's like, like I'll have to like put my legs like in a, tr- like my A leg, kind of like in a triangle. Mm-hmm. That's her her only way to fit in my lap because she's so she's small. She's small, but she's big. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like okay, no, we no, we gonna lay down. <laughs> but no, it just like no, okay, I have to pee anyway, so whatever. You remind me of the dinosaur from Meet the Robinsons. <laughs> and she does. She looks like she's got like she looks like she's got like little sleeves too. Roll up your sleeves, honey. Roll up your sleeves. I got a big head and little arms. I don't think this was thought through, Master. Oh my God, Master, Master. Oh, I love, that movie. I 
love that movie too. T Rex is my is my favorite. <laughs> and it's funny when she sits because she got some butt cheeks. <laughs> like it's like a little, you have her like you know little back legs, and then you have bleep, yeah butt curtains. She got some serious butt curtains <laughs> and a fupa. You can t- feel like what would be her if she had abs. That's what you would feel. A little too. Well, foo, foo, foo. But yeah, sorry. I like talking about my kitty. Yeah. She's such a chunker. <clears throat> but yes, toolbox killers. This is the first time that we're going into a story and I have no know anything about it. Because I heard about toolbox killers and I just added it to the list. Oh, uh, Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker and Roy Lewis Norris also known as the Toolbox Killers, were two American serial ki- ser- were two American serial killers and rapists who kidnapped, raped, tortured, and killed five teenage girls in Southern California over a period of five months in 1979. Woo. Yeah, right. I told you. I told you. Oh yeah. Described by FBI Special Agent John E. Douglas as the most disturbing individual for whom he has ever created a criminal profile. Bittaker was sentenced to death for five murders on March 24, 1981, but died of natural causes while incarcerated on death row at San Quentin State Prison in December 2019. Holy, that was just two couple years, couple years ago. <laughs> well, hang on. <laughs> right? <coughs> Blooper! Okay. <laughs> forgot how to drink. <laughs> <laughs> no, you just forgot to how swallow, honey. Don't swallow. You breathe through your nose. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm up right now, so I can't swallow. It happens. God, I know. That's why I hate winter. Because you have the heat on, it stuffs up your nose. Okay. Anyway, <clears throat> Norris accepted a plea bargain whereby he agreed to testify against Bittaker and was sentenced to life imprisonment on May 7, 1980, for the possibility of parole after serving 30 years. He died of natural causes at the California Medical Facility in February 2020. Bittaker and Norris became known as the Toolbox Killers because the majority of instruments used to torture and murder their victims, such as pliers, ice picks, and sledgehammers were items normally stored inside a household toolbox. Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27, 1940 as the unwanted child of a couple who had chosen to not have children. 1800s. Okay. 1839, inventor Charles Goodyear discovered rubber vulcanization, the technology of which led the creation of the first rubber condoms in 1855. They were the thickness of a bicycle inner tube and had to be custom fitted. Like, if you were going in there and getting size for a tux or shoes, that's why you're going in there. It was just like, like a, a cock shop. A, co- <laughs> a cock shop. 
One cock shop rib. Get your, get your suit. Get your shoes and get your rubber. Can't have sex tonight. I left my I left my rubber on the, the kitchen counter. Yeah, and I haven't I haven't cleaned it. So uh, I'm sorry. I had to find out. I had to know. That's like the equivalent of sticking like drilling a hole in a dildo, sticking your dick in it, and fucking somebody. I'm just saying, like maybe it was expensive back then. That was great. Lawrence Sigmund Bitteker was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on September 27, 1940 as the unwanted child of a couple who had chosen not to have children. Bitteker was placed in an orphanage by his birth mother and was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bitteker as an infant. Bitteker's adoptive father worked aviation industry which required the family to frequently move around the United States throughout his childhood. Bitteker was first arrested for shoplifting at the age of 12 and obtained a minor criminal record over the next four years after further arrests for the same offense in addition to petty theft which brought him to the attention of ju juvenile authorities. Bitteker would later claim these numerous theft-related offenses committed throughout his adolescence had been attempts to compensate for the lack of love he received from his parents. Although reported to have an IQ of 138, Bitteker considered school to be a tedious experience and dropped out of high school in 1957. Okay. I dropped out of high school in 1957, too. <laughs> yeah, right. Dang, girl, you look so good for your age. Shit. Fine, what do you use? Sobs and creams. Sobs and creams. Sobs and creams. By this stage in his adolescence, he and his adoptive parents were living in California. Within a year of dropping out, he had been arrested for car theft, a hit and run, and the evading arrest. For these offenses, he was imprisoned at the California Youth Authority, where he remained until he was 18 years old. Upon release, Bitteker discovered that his adoptive parents had disowned him and moved to another state. He would never see his adoptive parents again. Roy Lewis Norris was born in Greeley, Colorado on February 5th, 1948. Norris was conceived out of wedlock. His parents had married to avoid the social stigma surrounding illegitimate birth at the time. Illegitimate. <laughs> yeah, I can't read. Illegitimate. Illegitimate. Norris's extended family lived within a short distance of his parents' home due to his grandfather's real estate investments. His father worked in a, a scrapyard and his mother was a drug-addicted housewife. It's surprising. Yeah. In like the 40s, 50s, 60s, how many women alcoholic. I mean, I mm -hmm. would be too if I had to be a fucking woman in the 60s, but like... He occasionally lived with his parents throughout his childhood and adolescent, but was adolescence, but was repeatedly placed in the care of foster families throughout the state of Colorado. Norris's childhood recollections were interspersed with memories of wrongful accusations while living with his biological parents and of being neglected by many of the foster families families he lived with frequently being denied sufficient food or clothing. He also claimed to have been sexually abused when in the care of a Hispanic family, later stating the prejudice he held toward Hispanic people originated from the neglect and abuse he endured as a child 
and placed in the care of this family. While living with his birth parents at the age of 16, Norris visited the home of a female relative who was in her early 20s and began speaking to her in a sexually suggestive manner. She ordered him to leave her house and informed Norris's father who threatened to subject him to a beating. Norris subsequently stole his father's car and drove into the Rocky Mountains where he t attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into an artery in his arm. Oh my. He was later apprehended as a runaway and returned to live with his parents. Upon his return home, Norris's parents informed him that he and his younger sister were unwanted children and that they intended to divorce when both reached adolescence. A year later, Norris dropped out of school and joined the United States Navy. He was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and was deployed to serve in the Vietnam War in 1969. Although he did not see active combat during his four-month tour of duty, he was honorably discharged from the Navy after one tour of, tour of duty. Within days of his parole from the California Youth Authority, Bitteker was arrested for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines. In August 1959, Bitteker was sentenced to 18 months imprisonment to be served in Oklahoma State Reformatory. He was later transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri to serve the remainder of his sentence. In 1960, Bitteker was released from prison and soon reverted to crime. Within months of his release, he had been arrested in Los Angeles for robbery and, and in May 1961 was sentenced to 15 years imprisonment. There was more. While incarcerated for this robbery, he was diagnosed by a psychiatrist as being highly manipulative. The psychiatrist also described Bitteker as having considerable concealed hostility. Bitteker was released on parole in 1963 after completing two years of his sentence. In October 1964, he was again imprisoned for parole violation. In 1966, Bitteker underwent further examinations by two independent psychiatrists, both of whom classified him as a borderline psychopath. A highly manipulative individual unable to acknowledge the consequences of his actions. Bitteker explained to one of them that his criminal activities gave him a feeling of self-importance, although he insisted circumstantial matters pertaining to his environment and upbringing decreased his ability to resist committing crime. Bitteker was prescribed antipsychotic medication. A year later, he was again released into society. Okay, this is the fucking problem. Yeah. This is the justice system's fault. The reason that this shit happened was the justice system's fault. Mm -hmm. Because they didn't keep his ass in there. But y'all want to put people in prison for marijuana, but you don't want to keep people like him, who you know are going to commit worst crimes over and over and over and over and over again you keep letting them out year after year after year yeah i'm not okay he obviously needs to be in like a psychiatric type of situation like because it needs to be like on a separate island yes and can you only get across the, the bridge <sighs> put piranhas in the fucking water mm -hmm. 
There you go. A month after his parole in July 1967, Bideker was again arrested and convicted of theft and of leaving the scene of say? an accident. What did I just say? He was sentenced to five years, but was released in April 1970. In March 1971, Bideker was again arrested for burglary. Due to repeated parole violations, he was sentenced to serve between six months and 15 years imprisonment in October 1971. Was released from prison. <laughs> Gee, this is going to be like a yearly thing for him. Oh, my God. You ever take a break, sir? <laughs> but, you know, this is just all thievery and shit. Now here comes the train. <laughs> Rude. You bro. Okay. Oh, yeah. In nineteen seventy four, Bideker was arrested for assault with attempt to commit murder after he stabbed a young supermarket employee who had accused him of stealing. The supermarket employee had observed Bideker stealing a steak and had followed Bideker outside and into the store's parking lot, where he asked Bideker whether he had forgotten to pay. Bideker responded by st stabbing his pursuer in the chest, narrowly missing his heart. He attempted to flee but was quickly restrained by two other supermarket employees. The employee, Gary Louie, survived the stabbing and Bideker was convicted of a lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon and sent to California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo? Obispo. Obispo. Yeah. He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. Three months later, in February 1970, Norris attempted to deceive a lone woman into allowing him to enter her home. When the woman refused, he attempted to break into her house. <coughs> the uh, woman phoned the police, who arrested Norris before he had the opportunity to cause the woman any harm. Less than three months after this offense, Norris was diagnosed by a military psychologist with a severe schizoid personality. He was given an administrative discharge from the Navy under terms labeled as psychological problem. In May 1970, Norris on bail for his latest offense attacked a female student whom he had been stalking on the grounds of the San Diego State University campus. Norris repeatedly struck her on the back of the head with a rock until she slumped to her knees before he repeatedly beat her head against the sidewalk as he knelt upon her lower back. Shortly thereafter, Norris was charged with assault with a deadly weapon. He was committed to five years imprisonment at the, with five years probation having been declared by doctors as an individual who was of no further danger to others. What? I mean, at least he served the five years this time, but what the fuck? Yeah. Just three months after his release, Norris approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant. And when she declined, Norris parked his motorcycle and grabbed the woman's scarf, twisting it around her neck, 
before informing her he intended to rape her and dragging her into nearby bushes. Fearing for her life, the woman did not resist the rape. Although the rape was reported to police, they were initially unable to find the perpetrator. Norris was arrested for the rape. One year later, he was tried and convicted for this offense and sent to the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. While incarcerated at the California Men's Colony, Norris met and befriended Bittaker. Douchebag and douchebag number two met each other now. Yeah. You know, San Luis Obispo. No, you didn't just read that. Bittaker's initial impression of Norris upon his arrival at the California Men's Colony was that he was a savvy individual who largely associated with hardened criminals from motorcycle gangs in addition to dealing in contraband drugs. The pair gradually became more closely acquainted and began talking in friendly terms when Norris taught Bittaker how to construct jewelry. According to Norris, Bittaker saved him from being attacked by a fellow inmates on at least two occasions. By 1978, the pair had become close acquaintances, discovering they shared an interest in sexual violence and misogyny, with Norris also divulging to Bittaker the biggest stimulation for him was of seeing frightened young women, adding this was the primary reason he had massed a lengthy record for sexual offenses. Mm-hmm. Bittaker, who is not known to have committed any sexual offenses prior to his meeting Norris himself, divulged to Norris that if he ever raped a woman, he would kill her so as not to leave a witness to the crime. When alone, the pair regularly discussed plans to assault and murder teenage girls after they were released. This shared fantasy evolved into an elaborate plan to murder one girl of each teenage year from 13 through 19. The pair vowed to become reacquainted once they were released. Bittaker was released from the California men's colony on October 15, 1978. He returned to Los Angeles and found work as a skilled mechanist. This work earned Bittaker close to $1,000 a week and despite classifying himself as a loner, he became friendly with several people in his neighborhood earning a reputation as a generous and helpful individual who occasionally donated money to the Salvation Army. On one occasion, he is known to have purchased large quantities of fast food and wine, which he then handed to homeless individuals in downtown Los Angeles. Bittaker was particularly popular among the local teenagers and later admitted the primary reason he always had beer and marijuana in his Burbank Motel was that his residence would remain a popular place for teenagers to socialize. Three months after Bittaker was released from the California men's colony on January 15, 1979, Norris was released from prison and moved into his mother's home in Redondo Beach. Within one month of his release, he had raped a woman whom he then simply abandoned in a desert. He soon found employment as an electrician in Compton. Shortly thereafter, he received a letter from Bittaker. In, in late February, the pair met at a hotel and rekindled their plan to kidnap and rape girls. Wow. Told you, a lot of rapage. 
In order for the pair to abduct teenage girls, Bitteker decided they would need a van as opposed to a car. With financial assistance from Norris, Bitteker purchased a silver-gray 1977 GMC Vandura in February 1979. The vehicle was windowless on one side and had a large passenger side sliding door. According to Bitteker, when viewing the sliding door, he realized he or Norris could pull up and reel close and not have to open the doors all the way. Uh, Bitteker and Norris would nickname this being Murder Mac. Nice. From February to June 1979, Bitteker and Norris picked up over 20 female hitchhikers. The pair did not assault these girls in any manner. These practice runs were merely a way for them to develop ruses to lure girls into the van voluntarily and of discovering secluded locations. <clears throat> in late April, the pair... The pair found an isolated fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Bitteker broke open the locked gate with a crowbar and replaced the lock with one he, own, he owned. Schaefer was last seen leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. In his written accounts of the events of this day, Bitteker stated he and Norris first finished constructing the bed the pair had installed in the rear of the van beneath which they placed tools, clothes, and cooler filled with beer and soft drinks. At approximately 11 a.m., the pair drove to the beach area, drinking beer and smoking grass and flirting with girls. We had no set routine. At approximately 7.46 p.m., Norris spotted Schaefer walking down a side street and remarked to Bitteker, there was a cute little blonde. After unsuccessfully attempting to entice Schaefer into their van with alternative offers of marijuana and a lift home, Bitteker and Norris drove further ahead and parked alongside a driveway. Norris exited the vehicle, opened the passenger side sliding door, and leaned into the van with his head and shoulders obscured from view behind the door. When Schaefer passed the van, Norris exchanged a few words with her before dragging her into the van and closing the door. Using a ruse they would repeat in most of their subsequent murders, Bitteker turned the radio to full volume as Norris bound the victim's arms and legs and gagged her with duct tape as Bitteker drove Schaefer to the fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains where in April the pair had previously switched the locks. Despite initially screaming when she was abducted, Schaefer quickly regained her composure. In his written account of the night that followed, Bitteker wrote that Schaefer displayed a magnificent state of self-control and composed acceptance of the conditions of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and exp expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. At the fire road, Norris first raped Schaefer after instructing Bitteker to go take a walk and return in one hour. Upon returning to the van, Bitteker sim similarly raped the girl in Norris's absence. Upon the second occasion in which she was raped by Norris in Bitteker's absence, Schaefer asked him whether they intended to kill her, to which Norris replied, no. In response, Schaefer requested to be allowed time to pray before she was killed if that was Bitteker and Norris's intention. 
in their subsequent accounts of the actual murder, Bitteker and Norris gave differing accounts as to who argued over whether they should kill her rather than release her. Each stated the other argued that they should kill her. In any event, uh, Schaefer pl pleaded for only a second to pray before Norris attempted to manually strangle her. After approximately 45 seconds, he became disturbed at the look in her eyes and ran to the front of the van vomiting. Boudicca then manually strangled Schaefer until she collapsed to the ground and began convulsing. He then twisted a wire coat hanger around her neck with vice grip pliers until Schaefer's convulsions ceased. Schaefer was denied her request to pray before Bitteker and North killed her. Schaefer's body was wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over a steep canyon Bitteker had selected. According to Norris, after Bitteker had thrown Schaefer over the canyon, Bitteker assured him the animals would eat her up, so there wouldn't be any evidence left. Yeah, okay. On July 8th, 1979, two weeks after the murder of Schaefer, Bitteker and Norris encountered 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. As the pair slowed the van to offer Hall a lift, another vehicle pulled over and offered Hall exactly that which she accepted. Bitterka Norris followed the vehicle from a distance until Hall exited the vehicle at Rondondo Beach. On this occasion, Norris hid in the back of the van in order to dupe Hall into believing Bitterker was traveling alone. Inside the van, Bitterker offered Hall a cold drink from the cooler in the rear of the van. Norris, who had hidden behind a bedspread in the rear of the van, pounced on Hall when she attempted to retrieve the drink and after a strenuous fight managed to subdue her by twisting her arm behind her neck her back causing her to scream in pain at this location she was raped twice by Bitteker and once by Norris while Bitteker was raping Hall for the second time Norris saw what he believed to be vehicle headlights approaching Bitteker collapsed his hand over Hall's mouth and dragged her into nearby bushes as Norris drove in an unsuccessful search for the vehicle he thought he had seen. When he returned, the pair drove to a location farther in the San Gabriel Mountains. Bitteker forced Hall to walk uphill naked alongside the road and to then perform oral sex on him before ordering Hall to pose for several Polaroid pictures. Ew. You're fucking disgusting. Uh-huh. Bitteker and Norris drove Hall to a third location where Bitteker again walked Hall up a nearby hill. This time as Norris drove to a nearby store to purchase alcohol. When Norris returned, Bitteker was alone and in possession of two further Polaroid pictures he had taken, both of which depicted Hall's face and expressions Norris later described as being of sheer terror as she begged for her life to be spared. Bitteker informed Norris that he had told Hall he was going to kill her and challenged her to give him as many reasons as she could come up with as to why she would be allowed to live before thrusting an ice pick through her ear into her brain. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. He then turned her body over and thrust the ice pick into her other ear, stomping on it until the handle broke. Bitteker then strangled Hall before throwing her body off a cliff. On September 3rd, Bitteker and Norris observed two girls named Jackie Doris Gilliam and Jacqueline Lee Lamp sitting on a bus stop bench near 
Hermosa Beach. Lamp and Gilliam had been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway before Bitteker and Norris observed them as they were resting at the bus stop. Bitteker and Norris offered the girls a ride, which Gilliam and Lamp accepted. Of course, inside the van, both girls were offered marijuana by Norris, which they accepted. Shortly after entering the van, both girls realized that Bitteker had steered the van off the Pacific Coast Highway and was driving in the direction of the San Gabriel Mountains. When the girls protested, both Bitteker and Norris attempted to ally the girls' concerns with excuses which did not deceive either girl. Lamp, aged 13, attempted to open a sliding door, whereupon Norris hit her on the back of the head with a bag filled with lead weights, briefly knocking her unconscious before overpowering 15-year-old Gilliam. As he began to bind and gag Gilliam, Lamp regained consciousness and again attempted to flee the van, whereupon Norris twisted her arm behind her back and dragged her back into the van. As this struggle ensued, Bitterker, noting the girl's struggle, was in full view of potential witnesses, stopped the van, punched Gilliam in the face, and assisted Norris in finishing binding and gagging the two girls. Gilliam and Lamp were driven to the San Gabriel Mountains, where they were held captive for almost two years, being bound and gagged between repeated instances of sexual and physical abuse, Both men slept in the van alongside their two hostages, with each alternatively acting as a lookout. On one occasion, Bitteker walked Lamp onto a nearby hill and forced her to pose for pornographic pictures before returning her to the van. Bitteker also asked Norris to take several Polaroid pictures of himself and Gilliam, both nude and clothed. In the first of three instances in which Bitteker raped Gilliam, he also created a tape recording of himself raping her, forcing the girl to pretend she was his cousin and informing Gillian to feel free to express her pain. Bigger is also known to have tortured Gillian by stabbing her breasts with an ice pick and using vice grip pliers to tear off part of one nipple. <laughs> no, ma'am. No. Yeah. <laughs> At Bitterker's subsequent trial, Norris claimed he had suggested that Gilliam be killed quickly as unlike Lamp. She had been largely cooperative throughout the period of her captivity, whereupon Bitteker replied, No, they only died once anyway. Gilliam was struck in each ear with an ice pick and then strangled to death. After Bitteker had murdered Gilliam, he then forced Lamp out of the van upon exiting the sliding door. Bitteker shouted to her, you wanted to stay a virgin, now you can die a virgin. He said that and before he struck her upon the head with a sledgehammer. Mm. Yeah. Did that and then... Uh, Bitteker then strangled Lamp until he believed she had died. When Lamp opened her eyes, Norris again bludgeoned her repeatedly as Bitteker strangled her to death. The bodies of Gilliam and Lamp were thrown over an embankment into the chaparral. Bitteker and Norris abducted their final victim, 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford, on October 31st, 1979. Mm-hmm. Ledford was abducted as she 
stood outside a gas station hitchhiking home from a Halloween party in the Sunland Tuhunga suburb of Los Angeles. Upon accepting the offer of a lift home and entering the van, Ledford was offered marijuana by Norris, which she refused. Bittaker drove the van to a secluded street where Norris drew a knife, then bound and gagged Ledford with construction tape. Bittaker then traded places with Norris, who drove in an aimless manner for an excess of an hour as Bittaker remained with Lefford in the back of the van. After removing the construction tape from the girl's mouth and legs, Bittaker tormented Lefford, initially slapping and mocking her, then beating her with his fist as he repeatedly shouted for her to say something. Then as Lefford began screaming, shouting for her to scream louder. As Ledford continued screaming, Bittaker began asking her as he struck her, what's the matter? Don't you like to scream? Oh, it feels good. <laughs> I, know, I don't like what people say. I get angry. You want me angry? Do that. As Ledford began to cry, she pleaded with Bittaker repeatedly saying, no, don't touch me. In response, Bittaker again ordered her to scream as loud as she wished, then began alternately striking her with a hammer, beating her breast with his fists, and torturing her with pliers both between and throughout instances when he raped and sodomized her. Repeatedly, Ledford can be heard pleading for the abuse to cease and making statements such as, Oh no, no as sounds of Bittaker alternately extracting either the sledgehammer or the pliers from the toolbox can be heard on a tape recorder he had switched on after entering the rear of the van. Norris later described hearing screams, constant screams, emanating from the rear of the van as he drove. Shortly after Norris switched places with Bittaker, he himself switched on the tape recorder that Bittaker had used to to record much of the time he had been in the rear of the van with Ledford. Norris first shouted for Ledford to go ahead and scream or I'll, or I'll make you scream. In response, Le Ledford pleaded, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. Then emitted several high-pitched screams as Norris encouraged her to continue until he ordered her to stop. Norris then reached for the sledgehammer as Ledford, seeing him do this, screamed, oh no. Norrison struck Lefford once upon the left elbow. In response, she informed Norris he had broken her elbow before pleading, Don't hit me again. In response, Norris again raised the sledgehammer as Ledford repeatedly screamed, No. Norrison proceeded to strike Ledford 25 consecutive times upon the same elbow with a sledgehammer before asking her, what are you snip, sniveling about? As Ledford continuously screamed and wept. And he had like a little thing like describing yeah. stuff on the audio tape. And it says, we've all heard women scream in horror films. Still, we know that no one is really screaming. Why? Simply because an actress can't produce some sounds that convince us that something vile and heinous is happening. If you ever heard that tape, there is just... No possible way that you'd not begin crying and trembling. I doubt you could listen to more than a full 60 seconds of it. After approximately two hours of captivity, Norris killed Lefford by strangling her with a wire 
coat hanger which he tightened with pliers. Ledford did not react much to the act of strangulation, although she died with her eyes open. Bitteker then opted to discard her body on a random lawn in order to view the uh, reaction from the press. The pair drove to a randomly selected house in Sunland where Norris discarded Ledford's body in a bed of ivy upon the front lawn. Ledford's body was found by a jogger the following morning. An autopsy revealed that in addition to having been sexually violated, she had died of strangulation after receiving extensive blunt force trauma to the face, head, breasts, and left elbow with her olecranon, sustaining multiple fractures. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, caused in part by a bit of her having inserted pliers inside her body. In addition, her left hand bore a puncture wound and a finger on her right hand had been slashed. Bitteker would later claim the tape recording the pair had created of Leffert's clear abuse and torture offered nothing other than evidence of a threesome. Adding that, toward the very end, Leffert was screaming for him and Norris to kill her. In November 1979, Norris became reacquainted with a friend named Joseph Jackson, an individual with whom he with whom he had previously been incarcerated at the California men's colony. Norris confided in Jackson's regarding his and Bitteker's exploits over the previous five months, including graphic details of the murder of Shirley Ledford. A Hermosa Beach detective named Paul Bynum was assigned to I hope that's was assigned to investigate Jackson's claims as to Norris's confessions of the murders, attempted abductions, and rapes that he had confided to Jackson and had occurred between June and October. Bynum initially noted that Jackson's statements as to Norris's confessions did match reports on the file of several teenage girls who had been reported missing over the previous five months. In addition, the incident Norris had confided to Jackson where he claimed he and Bitteker had sprayed mace in the face of a woman who had been who had then been dragged into Bitteker's GMC van and raped by both men matched a report filed in relation to an incident that occurred on September 30th. In this file report, a young woman named Robin Roback had had mace sprayed in her face before being dragged into a van and raped by two Caucasian men in their mid-30s before being released. Although Roback had reported the abduction and rape to police, they had been unable to identify her as, as, assailants. <laughs> Bynum dispatched an investigator to visit Robeck at her residence in Oregon to show her a series of mugshots. Without hesitation, Robeck positively identified two photos presented to her as those of the men who had kidnapped and raped her on September 30th. The two individuals she had identified were Bitteker and Norris. Upon linking Bitteker and Norris to the rape of Robin Robeck, the Hermosa Beach police placed Norris under surveillance. Within days, they had observed his dealing in marijuana. On November 20, 1979, Norris was arrested by the Hermosa Beach police for parole violation. The same day at the Burbank Motel where he presided, Bitteker was arrested for the rape of Robin Robeck. Robin Robeck. Although Robeck had identified mugshots of Bitteker and Norris, she was unable to positively identify her assailants in police lineup. Nonetheless, police had observed Norris dealing in marijuana, whereas Bitteker had been in possession of drugs at the time of his arrest. 
Both were held on charges of parole violation. A search of Bittaker's apartment revealed several Polaroid photographs which were determined as depicting Hall and Gilliam, both of whom had been reported as missing earlier the same year. Inside Bittaker's van, investigators discovered a sledgehammer, sledgehammer, a plastic bag filled with lead weights, a book detailing how to locate police radio frequencies, a jar of Vaseline, two necklaces, and a tape recording of a young woman in obvious distress, screaming and pleading for mercy while being tortured and sexually abused. The mother of Ledford, named by Jackson as being one of the women whom Norris had confessed he and Bittaker had killed, identified the voice on the tape as being that of her only daughter. Oh my god. Yeah. Ugh. The voices of the two men mocking and threatening Ledford in the process of her torture and abuse were identified as being Roy Norris. Also found Bittaker's motel were seven bottles of various acidic materials. Acidic. Acidic. Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ. Acidic. 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 Investigators would later discover Bittaker planned to use these acidic materials upon their next Inside Norris's apartment, police discovered a bracelet he had taken from Ledford's body as a souvenir. Also found at the homes of both Bittaker and Norris were Polaroid pictures of almost 500 teenage girls and young women, most of which had apparently been taken at Redondo Beach and, Hermo and Hermosa Beach with others taken by Bittaker at a Burbank high school. Most of these pictures had been taken without the girl's knowledge or consent. By this stage, Norris was beginning to display visible signs of stress. At the hearing, Norris waived his Miranda rights before Detective Bynum and Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay began questioning him initially in relation to the rape of Robin Robeck then in relation to the statements given to the police by Joseph Jackson and the evidence recovered from his and Bittaker's residences. Initially, Norris flatly denied any involvement in any murders, rapes, or disappearances. However, when confronted with the evidence investigators had complied, Norris began to confess, although he did attempt to portray Bittaker as being more culpable in the murders than himself. <laughs> yeah. And what Bynum and Kay later described as a casual, unconcerned manner. Norris divulged that he and Bittaker had been in the habit of driving around areas such as the Pacific Coast Highway and randomly approaching girls whom they found attractive with offers of a ride posing with the pair for photographs or marijuana. Most of those whom they approached rejected whatever given ruse Bittaker and Norris used to entice them into the van, although four girls had accepted lifts from the pair had been murdered with a fifth victim, their first being grabbed by force. Inside the van, the girls would typically be overpowered, bound hand and foot, gagged and driven to locations deep within the San Gabriel Mountains where they would be sexually assaulted by both men, then usually killed by strangulation with a wire coat hanger, although two of the victims had ice picks driven into their ears before being strangled. Norris admitted to bludgeoning their youngest victim, Lamp, about the head with a sledgehammer as Bittaker strangled her and admitted to repeatedly striking, 
Shirley Ledford upon the elbow with a sledgehammer before strangling her to death. The bottles of acid found at Bettercruz Motel, Norris stated, were intended for use upon the next victim they abducted, and the acts of torture and humiliation had been committed against their victims for fun. According to Norris, the level of brutality Bittaker had exhibited toward their victims had increased on each successive instance. They had lured a girl into the van. Their final victim, Lefford, had actually pleaded to be killed in order that her agony could cease. <clears throat> Additional details by Norris provided further co corroborating cooperating evidence to support his confessions. For example, he knew that their first victim, Schaefer, had left a meeting at a Presbyterian church shortly before she was abducted and that Schaefer had lost one shoe as she had been dragged into Bittaker's van. Norris also knew part of Shirley Ledford's ancestry was Hispanic and that Bittaker had unsuccessfully asked her to date him prior to October 1979. In a press statement relating to the police investigation into the murders issued on February 7, 1980, Los Angeles County Sheriff Peter Pitches stated the victims had been subjected to sadistic and barbaric abuse, adding that five charges of first-degree murder would be sought against both Bittaker and Norris. Sheriff Pitches also stated that in relation to the Polaroid pictures found in Bittaker and Norris's apartments, police had located 60 of the young women depicted, none of whom had been harmed. Thankfully. Yeah. Nonetheless, Pitches also said that police had also identified 19 of the women depicted in the pictures as, been, as being individuals who had been reported missing and that these teenage girls and young women may well have been murdered. Although Pitches did stress that they had no conclusive evidence to suggest that these additional 19 women photographed had fallen victim to Bittaker and Norris. One of the Polaroid pictures seized from Bittaker and Norris depicts an unidentified young white woman alone with Bittaker and Norris in circumstances very similar to the pictures found depicting knowing victims Hall, Lamp, and Gilliam. The young woman in the pictures has never been identified. This photograph is indicative there may have been one further victim whom neither Bittaker nor Norris ever mentioned to investigators. Norris agreed to return to the San Gabriel Mountains to search for the bodies of the girls to whose abduction and murder he had confessed to assisting in. In each instance, Norris brought detectives to the area where he and Bittaker had disposed of their victims' bodies. Despite extensive searches of the areas where he stated the bodies of Schaefer and Hall had been discarded, their bodies were never found. On February 9, 1980, the skeletalized bodies of Lamp and Gilliam were found at the bottom of a canyon alongside a dry riverbed. The bodies were scattered over an area measuring hundreds of feet in diameter. An ice pick was still lodged in the skull of Gilliam. 
The skull of lamp bore multiple indentations, evidence of the numerous hammer blows Norris had stated he inflicted. In February 1980, Norris and Bideker were formally charged with the murders of the five girls. At the arraignment, Bideker was denied bail, whereas Norris's bail was set at $10,000. I mean, I guess this was a lot more money in the 80s. but Yeah. Within one month of his being charged with murder, Norris had accepted a plea bargain in which he would testify against Bideker in return for the prosecution Agreeing not to seek the death penalty against him. Fuck you. Yeah. <clears throat> On March 18, 1980, Norris pleaded guilty to four accounts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. Formal sentencing was postponed until May 7th. In return for Norris's agreeing to plead guilty and to testify against Bitteker, prosecutors had agreed to seek neither the death penalty nor life without parole at the upcoming sentencing hearing. Prior to his May 7th sentencing, Norris was reviewed by a probation officer who testified at his sentencing that Norris had again accused Bitteker of the actual torture of their victims and that for Norris himself, the feeling of power and the dominance he had over the victims was the main overriding factor, as opposed to having sexual intercourse with them. The probation officer added that Norris never exhibited any remorse or compassion about his brutal acts towards the victims. The defendant appears compulsive in his need to inflict pain and torture upon women. In conclusion, the probation officer testified that Norris can realistically be regarded as an extreme psycho sociopath <laughs> sorry sociopath whose depraved pattern of behavior is beyond rehabilitation mm -hmm. on may 7 1980 norris was sentenced to 45 years to life imprisonment with eligibility 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 for a parole from 2010 On April 24, 1980, Bideker was arraigned on 29 charges of kidnapping, rapes, sodomy? Sodomy. Sodomy. Jesus. Sodomy. And murder in addition to various charges of criminal conspiracy and possession of a firearm. He was also charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder dating from December 1979 in which he had unsuccessfully attempted to persuade two inmates due to be released to murder Robin Robeck in order to prevent her from testifying against him at his upcoming trial. Wow. <clears throat> the charges for the rape of Robin Robeck would later be dropped because of a lack of physical evidence as well as Robeck's failing to identify her attackers in a lineup. When asked by Judge William Hollingsworth as to how he pleaded, Bitteker remained silent, refusing to answer any questions. In response, the judge entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. Bitteker's trial began on January 19th of 81. He was tried in Torrance before Judge Thomas Fredericks. The star witness to appear for the prosecution at the trial Bitteker was Norris, who began his testimony on January 22nd. Norris testified as to how he became acquainted with Bitteker in jail and how the pair had formulated a plan to kidnap, rape, and kill teenage girls. <laughs>
Responding to questions from the prosecutor, Norris stated that in June 1979, he had unsuccessfully attempted to abduct and rape a woman who escaped unharmed. When he informed Bittaker of this incident, they both agreed to act together on all future abductions. Norris then chronologically recounted for the court the details of each of the five murders he and Bittaker had committed in addition to the September 30, 1979 rape of Robeck the attempted abduction of a woman named Jan Mallon, which had also occurred on September 30th, and the attempted abduction of an unidentified young woman on September 27th. In reference to the actual murders, Norris stated that after he unsuccessfully attempted to strangle Schaefer, Bittaker had strangled her with a wire coat hanger. The pair had then thrown her body into a location at, our, at or near the San Demacan Canyon. In reference to the murder of Hall Norris, stated he had been told by Bittaker to drive to a nearby store to purchase alcohol when Hall was murdered, after which he returned to find Bittaker smiling and holding Polaroid pictures he had taken of Hall after informing her he intended to kill her. With reference to victims Lamp and Gilliam, Norris stated that the two girls were held captive for over a day before being murdered, adding that Bittaker had killed Gilliam before he himself bludgeoned Lamp about the head as Bittaker strangled her. When discussing the abuse and torture of Ledford, Norris stated he had, upon the insistence of Bittaker, committed the actual murder of Ledford, adding Bittaker had informed him that I should kill her because I hadn't killed anyone yet. I knew this was coming, so I agreed. Norris then confessed to having killed Lever by strangling her with a coat hanger, which he had tightened with pliers in much the same manner Bittaker had with previous victims, Schaefer and Lamp. Norris then stated the pair had driven to Sunland, where he discarded Shirley Lefford's body upon the front lawn as Bittaker's waited in his van. Several witnesses testified as to Bittaker having shown them pictures of the victims he had retained as keepsakes and which had been found in his motel. One witness, a 17-year-old neighbor of Bittaker's named Christina Drail, testified that Bittaker had shown her a Polaroid picture he had taken of Gilliam before stating, the girls I get won't talk anymore. Drawl also stated Bittaker had once played a cassette tape to her in which she heard two girls screaming and Bittaker laughing. Another witness to testify was Lloyd Douglas, who had shared a jail cell with Bittaker followed his November, following his November 1979 arrest. Douglas testified that Bittaker had discussed in detail the torture he had inflicted on victims Gilliam and Ledford, stating Bittaker had informed him he had stabbed one of Gilliam's breasts with an ice pick, which he then twisted as the tool remained inserted in the wound. Oh my god. He had also pinched Gilliam on the legs and breasts with a vice grip before tearing off part of one nipple. Douglas also stated Bittaker had informed him he had pulled on the gen genitals and breasts of Shirley Ledford with the same instrument and that he had attempted to beat her beat her breasts back into her chest. Yeah. To support their case to support their case, the defense produced a friend of Norris named Richard Schoopman, 
who testified as to Norris's repeatedly divulging to him his desire to rape young girls. Schutman also testified that Norris had informed him that the look of shock and fear on the face of a young girl was a prime sexual stimulus for him. Ew. In support of Bittaker's case, the defense also har harked to the Polaroid images taken of the facial expressions of Hall and of Bittaker's statements as to Norris's revelations to Bittaker's regarding his prime sexual stimulations while both were incarcerated at the California Men's Colony in 1977. The most damning evidence pre presented at Bittaker's trial was a 17-minute section of the audio tape the pair had created of Lefford's abuse and torment. Judge Fredericks had earlier denied motions by the defense to omit, omit the tape recording from admissions as evidence. More than a hundred people were pre present in the courtroom as the tape was played, and many members of both the jury and the audience wept openly upon hearing the contents with several members of the audience either burying their heads in their hands, <sighs> dabbing tears from their eyes, or rushing out of the courtroom before the tape had finished. Bittaker was undisturbed at hearing the contents of the tape and smiled throughout the duration of the recording. In one of two instances throughout the trial when prosecutor Stephen Kay was reduced to tears, he walked out of the courtroom during recess following the hearing of the recording of Lefford's rape, abuse, and torture. Weeping openly, Kay stated to the reporters gathered outside the courtroom, Everybody who has heard that tape has had it affect their lives. I just pictured those girls, how alone they were when they died. <clears throat> when questioned by reporters whether the audio tape should have been introduced into evidence, given the obvious psychological and emotional trauma caused so many in the courtroom to the contents being broadcast, Case simply stated, you're darn right. Or, you're darn right it should have been. Your jury needs to know what yeah. these guys did. Yeah. On February 5th, 1981, Bittaker testified on his own behalf. Bittaker denied any knowledge in the abduction and murder of Schaefer and claimed he had paid Hall to pose for the Polaroid photographs depicting, depicting her found at his Burbank Motel after Hall had agreed to his offer of $200 for sex. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Yeah. I need a drink. Right. Ah! Get a little red. Welcome to my world, baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he then claimed Norris had walked Hall into the San Gabriel Mountains before returning alone and informing Bittaker he had told Hall to find her own way home. Mm-hmm. Bittaker had a similar explanation as to the double murder of Lamp and Gilliam. He claimed Gilliam accepted an offer of money for sex and posing for pictures and that he had last seen the girls alone with Norris in his GMC van. With regards to the murder of Letford, he claimed she had agreed to theatrically scream for the tape recorder and that she was not tortured in his presence, but had been left alone with Norris. So Norris is throwing Bittaker on the bus, and Bittaker's throwing Norris on the bus. Yeah! Bittaker's trial lasted for over three weeks. On February 9th, 1981, the prosecution defense counsels began their closing arguments. And the closing argument delivered by the prosecution 
Kay apologized to the jury that he was only asking for the death penalty, adding that he wished the law permitted him to request that the same suffering be inflicted upon Bitteker that he had inflicted upon his victims. That should be a yeah. thing. That should be a thing. If you rape and torture and whatever people, you should be raped, tortured, tortured and murdered. Kay then described Bitteker as an excuse for a for a man as he held aloft pictures of each of the five murdered girls before the jury. Seeking the death penalty for Bitteker, Kay referred to the case as one of the most shocking brutal cases in the history of American crime and added, if the death penalty is not appropriate in this case, then when will it ever be? Exactly. In his own closing argument before the jury, Deputy District Attorney C. Randolph Ramsey discredited Bitteker's claims that, contrary to Norris's testimony, Shirley Lynette Lefford had agreed to scream, weep, and plead for mercy theatrically for the tape recording introduced as evidence stating to the jury, you've heard the sounds on this tape. Miss Ledford screaming, yelling, don't touch me. No, 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 no. That tape should be sufficient corroboration by itself. Uh-huh. Defense attorney Albert Garber, requ- Garber requested the jury discount the testimony of Norris, arguing, arguing in favor of Bitteker's claims that Norris had committed the actual murders and claiming the testimony of the prosecutors throughout the trial amounted to little more than a bloodlust, adding that the prosecution had repeatedly recited the gory details of the murders. Garber harked to the earlier testimony of a psychologist named Michael Maloney, who had testified as to Bitteker's inability to empathize with other people's feelings and emotions, in addition to the fact that, with the exception of Bitteker's 1974 stabbing of Gary Louie, all Bitteker's previous criminal convictions were for nonviolent offenses. The defense also claimed that insufficient corroborative corroborative, jeez. Ev- <laughs> Corroborative evidence existed to convict Bitteker on February. Uh, on Bitteker, sorry. Actually, edit. I'm gonna reread that. The defense also claimed that insufficient corroborative evidence existed to convict Bitteker on February 17, 1981. After deliberating for th- for three days, the jury found Bitteker guilty of five counts of first-degree murder. One charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Five charges of kidnapping. Nine charges of rape. Two charges of forcible oral copulation. One charge of sodomy. And three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. Deliberations as to whether Bitteker should be sentenced to death or life without parole began February 19th. The jury deliberated for just 90 minutes before they returned with their verdict. Bitteker was sentenced to death for the five counts of first-degree murder upon which the prosecution had sought this penalty. He showed no emotion as the verdict was delivered. Or, he showed no emotion as the verdict was delivered. Superior Court Judge Thomas Federicks then ordered Bitteker to appear in court on March 24th for formal sentencing. 
on March 24th in accordance, accordance with the jury verdict, Bitteker was formally sentenced to death. In the event that the sentence imposed was ever reverted to life imprisonment, Judge Thomas Fredericks imposed an alternative sentence of 199 years, four months imprisonment to take immediate effect. Okay, I'm sorry. Nobody's living to be a 200. But they just want to make sure. <laughs> right, right. Bitteker appealed his conviction and sentencing, citing per procedural. procedural errors such as the val validity. Validity. <laughs> I'm reading, reading that. Bitteker appealed his conviction and sentencing, citing procedural error, errors such as the validity. Validity of. Warrants to authorize the search of his van and motel room, and the dismissal by the judge of a woman initially hired at the stage of jury selection to advise the defense counsel in matters relating to jury views upon the death penalty. Nonetheless, Bitterker's appeal was dismissed on June 22, 1989 with the court ruling that any procedural errors were minor and, in view of the strong evidence against Bitteker, did not affect their overall verdict. And initial execution day for Bitteker... Bitteker... <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Thank you. <laughs> An initial execution date for Bitteker was set for December 29, 1989. Of execution on July 9, 1991. Bitteker granted several death row interviews following his 1981 conviction. He never expressed any remorse for his crimes, repeatedly stating the only remorse he felt had been for the fact he and Norse were arrested, thus ruining his own life. Wow. Yeah. Despite the fact Bitterker considered his life to have been a wasted one, he also marveled that he and Norris had little in common for their acquaintance at the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, Obispo in 1977 before adding that they had one hell of a lot in common now. Yeah. <clears throat> In reference to one of the implements he and Norris had used to torture and murder their victims, Bitteker responded to letters he received with the nickname Pliers Bitteker. While incarcerated, Bitteker filed more than 40 fri frivolous. frivolous lawsuits over issues as trivial as his being served a broken cookie and crushed sandwiches by the prison cafeteria, which he cited as an example of his being subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. Oh no! Oh, it's broken. It broke. <laughs> Bitteker was declared a 
vexatious litigant in 1993. As a result of this declaration, he was not allowed to file lawsuits without the express permission of an attorney or a judge. Bitterker died while incarcerated on death row at San Quentin State Prison on December 13, 2019, at the age of 79. His death was reported as being due to natural causes. Norris was incarcerated at the Richard J. Donovan Correctional Facility. He died of natural causes at the California Medical Facility on February 24, 2020, at the age of 72, having been transferred to this facility one week prior to his death. Since his conviction, he had repeatedly claimed the sole reason he participated in the murders was out of fear of Bitteker. Norris also claimed to have twice contemplated confessing to his and Bitteker's responsibility in the murders to the police. He also claimed to have deterred three potential victims from entering Bitteker's van. Although Norris readily admitted that he enjoyed the acts of rape with the victims, he claimed only Bitteker enjoyed the acts of torture and murder, stating, I didn't enjoy killing. That was Lawrence. Lawrence Bitteker. It was his favorite part, watching the women struggle to live, knowing he'd soon be taking life anyway. Or taking life away. Both investigators and psychologists have stated Norris derived extreme gratification from the domination, abuse, and torture inflicted upon his victims. These respective parties have also harked toward Norris's extensive history of physical and sexual violence against women prior to his meeting Bitteker and his repeated instances of denial of culpability for his actions. Norris initially became eligible for parole in 2009. Norris declined to attend the parole hearing, thereby automatically deferring his parole eligibility for another 10 years. He was denied parole again in 2019 and died while still incarcerated early the following year. Stephen Kay, the prosecutor at Bitteker's trial, still considers the murders committed by Bitteker and Norris as being the worst criminal case he has ever prosecuted or encountered and remained insistent in his belief that prior to Bitteker's death, via natural causes, he had been more deserving of being executed than any other inmate incarcerated on California's death row. In interviews, he has stated that for over two years following the trial of Lawrence Bitteker, his sleep was disturbed by reoccurring nightmares in which he would be rushing to Bitteker's van to prevent harm coming to the girls, but would always get there too late. Paul Bynum, the chief investigator of the murders committed by Bitteker Norris, committed suicide in December 1987. He was 39 years old. In a 10-page suicide note, Bynum specifically referred to the murders committed by Bitteker and Norris as haunting him and of his fear they may be released from prison. The audio cassette Bitteker and Norris created of themselves raping and torturing Ledford remains in the possession of the FBI Academy. This recording is now used to train and desensitize FBI agents to the raw reality of torture and murder. Jesus. That was a lot. Yes, it was. (laughs) 
Holy shit. Oh my god. So this is like whenever like whenever we have our discussions and Preston is like Oh, I'm against the death penalty and I say I'm for it for specific Yeah, for situation. specific situation. This is the exact example of yeah, exactly. that situation. Motherfuckers like this don't deserve to live. They don't deserve to be left on death no. row. Oh my god. So yeah, that's the uh, toolbox killers, man. Yeah. Yeah. So trigger lot. warnings there. Big trigger warnings. Yeah. So, uh, that's all for today. Thank you for listening to The Creep Show. That's Ashley. I'm Sarah. Stay creepy. Bye. Subscribe to The Creep Show today. Available on Apple, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and just about anywhere you can find a podcast.